Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. Thank you, Pastor. So the thing about the Word is, to me, that we have to walk it out. Right? It's, it's not a dead document. Like a, a history book, you just learn about history. This is this has got history. It's got poetry. <laughs> it's got a lot of deep things that the writers have shared about their lives and their ministry. And why did God give it to us? Because he wants us to know what he values. If he didn't care, we wouldn't have this word. 66 books written by 40 authors over almost 2,000 years. <laughs> if, if he didn't want to speak to us, we wouldn't have this. But we do. So I, I think it's just critical that, that we learn how to dig through the word. And so last week when we started into looking at the book of 1 Thessalonians, one of the things that I probably spent more time than I should have, I apologize, but maybe I don't apologize. I think it's important that we understand the setting of where the book is. That's why we spent so much time in the book of Acts. And we'll actually be back there just a little bit tonight to get more of the setting. But maybe you can help me a little bit. Who's the author of the book of 1 Thessalonians and 2nd? Paul? When was it written? A long time ago. Thank you, Michael. Mm, big help. I'm sure your teachers loved you in school. <laughs> okay. So last week I, I said that it was probably written around 50 AD. And by a lot of uh, Bible commentators, they think this is probably the first book of the New Testament that was written. So some people said, no, it was Galatians. Well, it's another Paul book. But regardless, between the time of writing and the time that Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected is less than 20 years. So this is a really early letter to a really early church. Paul founded this on his second missionary journey. And so last week, uh, I gave you a handout, and if you didn't get last week's handout, Mike will be glad to give you one of those. Just raise your hand. Has to be your left hand, because if you use your right hand, then you need tonight's. <laughs> or if you raise both hands, you may either be filled with the Spirit, or you might need both handouts. Okay. So, where was this church located that Paul was writing to? <laughs> so again, the duh answer is yes, Thessalonica. Which is, if you, if you look at last week's handout on the back page, there is a map. 
And Thessalonica is actually in, it's in black with uh, white letters, and it's at the top of the, the north end of the Aegean Sea. So when Paul left from Troas and sailed over to essentially Europe, and why did he go there? That is not where he wanted to go. He wanted to go to Asia, didn't he? He wanted to go to the regions of Bithynia, and, and what happened? God said, no. There may be good things in your life, and God just says, no. I got something better. So you say, okay, and you go on. So Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia. Macedonia is the northern part of the Greek Peninsula. The southern part of that same peninsula, down around Athens and Corinth, is called Achaia. And so when you see biblical references to those two geographic places, Macedonia and Achaia, that's, that's, that's Greece. Macedonia was founded by Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. And so I want to spend just a little time and talk more tonight about Thessalonica because we didn't do this last week. This is on the front page of last week's handout. So who, who went with Paul to Thessalonica? You had Paul and Silas and Timothy. And they were in Thessalonica probably around 49 AD. How long was Paul there to establish this church? Three, Three to four weeks. We had a little discussion after class last week. Was it three? Was it four? All we know from, from the scriptures is that he was there for three Sabbaths. And he had gone from Troas to Philippi, and from there to Thessalonica, from there to Berea, from there to um, where? Athens, sorry. Had a senior moment. And from Athens to Corinth. So in, in Acts chapter 16, we have recorded the, the, the story of Paul in Philippi. Lots of very eventful things there. Where did Paul start his church in Philippi? Sorry? In jail. Well, he ended up in jail, yes. But Paul had a pattern of every, every city that he visited, he went to the synagogue. If you read Acts chapter 16, it does not say that he went to a synagogue. It said he met some women down by the river. 
apparently Philippi was not a big enough city to have a large enough Jewish population to have a synagogue. And so that church started down by the riverside. And I guess I, I don't want to get hung up in this because when we say the word church, we have certain things that come into our mind, don't we? We have a building, we have a pastor, we have a parking lot, <laughs> we have elder boards and deacon boards and all the things that church has. Did Paul's church have anything like that? No. <laughs> so the Greek word that is used for church is the word ekklesia which literally means called out once. Called out for holiness and following God's teachings. And so when, when we talk about, well, I want to be like the early church. Well, the early church didn't look anything like what our church does today, right? And you say, well, I want to follow the, the scriptures that the early church read. Well, what they have? The Old Testament. That was it. Right? None of the New Testament had been written because this is the first book. So, you have to keep that in mind. At Philippi, Paul met with some women. He did something that really riled up the, the leaders in the city. What did he do? He cast out a demon from a lady who basically had a group of handlers. <laughs> and she was at their beck and call to do fortune telling, basically. And she was following Paul, Silas, and Timothy around, and Paul finally got fed up with it. And he said, okay, come out in the name of Jesus. And that was it. It was done. She was no longer the valued tool that all these guys had before. So now she had no value, and they had no income. That's what started the riot. They made it sound like, well, this guy Paul is coming, and he's stirring up the city because he's trying to institute Jewish practices that will get us in trouble with the Romans. So I, I keep thinking of the TV show Spin City. You got the real story, and then you got the manufactured story. And the more often I listen to the news, I know it's not the real story I'm getting. It's this manufactured story that they want you to believe. That's really not true. There's these little elements of truth in it so that you buy into it. The worst kind of lie is the one that has a little bit of truth. And so we're going to see tonight, as we get into chapter 2, that, that Paul has got to defend himself against Facebook, Twitter, I guess it's called X now, um, Instagram, TikTok, all of those things were active in his day and were saying really bad things about him. So he has to defend his ministry. And in the process in chapter 2, he is building up the believers in Thessalonica saying, 
you're not following somebody that's bogus. You're following somebody that's led by Jesus. Okay, so in Philippi, he gets jailed with Silas, right? And you know the story. The, there's an earthquake. The, the jailer finally says, what must I do to be saved? Right? And he and his house are saved and baptized. And in the, in the, in the whole midst of that, then Paul and Silas are, are beaten. And Paul says, oh, hang on. <laughs> Did you know? Not only am I Jewish, but by the way, I'm a Roman citizen, and you just beat me up for no good reason. Maybe I should go to the authorities and just mention that you guys beat me without a fair trial. Hmm. So that kind of shut him up a little bit. But Paul left the city of Philippi beaten. He still had the scars on his back when he got to Thessalonica. And Monday night in the men's meeting, we talked a little bit about don't quit. That was the whole topic. And we looked at all the stuff that Paul went through. But coming into Thessalonica, it's a little different situation than Philippi because there he goes to the synagogue rather than down by the riverside. So we see this in Acts chapter 17 as he comes into Thessalonica. And there he's, he's ministering for three Sabbaths. What I think is incredible is when we look at this book, there is such deep doctrinal truth in five chapters of this book that he taught them in three meetings and his ministry during that time. I know Christians that have been saved and attending church for 20 years that don't have that depth of knowledge. They, they have Jesus loves me this I know and a little past that. In fact, I, got, I want to read this really good statement that I, I got from somebody this week. It's called The Church Today. Someone has defined the average church service in a liberal church and you can define that however you want. I would, I would call that a non-Bible-believing, non-Jesus-following. Um, <laughs> anyway, in a liberal church, as a mild-mannered man who gets up before a group of mild-mannered people and urges them to be more mild-mannered. <laughs> that, unfortunately, is the picture of the church today. That's not Paul. <laughs> as you know, in reading this. And so, fresh out of Philippi, with his back bleeding, he goes into Thessalonica, and for three Sabbaths, does what? Ministers, teaches, and founds an ecclesia in that city. What happens? This group of rabble-rousers from Philippi comes over to Thessalonica and said, hey, we got ready in Philippi, we can get ready here in Thessalonica. And they drive him out. So they go to Berea. And Acts 17.11 says that the Bereans were more noble than the believers in Thessalonica because they looked at the word and studied it every single day. 
Paul was complimenting them. But the same thing happens here in, in Acts 17. So he goes beaten up again. Beaten, beaten, beaten. <laughs> that was why I brought it up Monday night at the men's meeting. Don't quit. Follow Paul's example. He goes to Athens. He preaches this incredible sermon on Mars Hill. We've actually been there, got my picture taken on <laughs> the rock where they say it happened, which is probably not true at all. But, <laughs> you know, usually they build churches or basilicas over these really significant places so you can't actually see them. Um, and that's probably not where it happened at all. But, you know, it makes a good marker. So my question, what do you think was Paul's greatest sermon Any guesses? Would it be the one on Mars Hill in Athens? Where he talks about the unknown God? Maybe. So I'm going to give you a list. He preached at Damascus after he was converted. He preached before Sergius Paulus on the Isle of Cyprus. He preached at a synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, Mars Hill. He preached at the school of Tyrannus in Ephesus. He defended himself in Corinth and his arrest in Jerusalem, and he preached before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. Which one of those sermons was his greatest? We can take a vote, but I'm going to give you an answer that I think is correct. None of them. I think Paul's greatest sermon is what we'll see in chapter 2 tonight, and that was his life and ministry before the believers in Thessalonica. A life speaks a lot more than just words. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that was Paul. And so while he had a lot of great sermons, he lived a life before the Thessalonians that, that stood up to what he said. He said, follow me, right? And <laughs> I don't know how many people would raise their hand and say, follow me. Do, do what I do. I'm, I'm lowering my hand now. <laughs> but as believers, I kind of think we should be able to say that. But Paul said it. <laughs> follow me as I follow Christ. Okay, so... <sighs> I've gotten a little bit lost because I wanted to talk about Thessalonica just a little bit. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy came to Thessalonica about 49 AD. It was at that time the provincial capital of the Roman Empire. How far did the Roman Empire stretch? <laughs> well, <laughs> it stretched from Britain all the way to Asia somewhere. They had a big, far-flung empire that was really, really hard to control. And so they built a phenomenal system of roads. Rhodes is also the name of an island. That's not what I'm talking about. R-O-A-D-S, roads. Places where chariots could drive, people could walk. And Thessalonica, if you look on the map on last week's handout, 
actually, look, look on this week's handout. Go to the back page. There is another map. And if you can find Thessalonica, which is actually in the same place, surprisingly, on this map as it was on the first one. It's on the north end. Of, you're all shocked at that. It's on the north end of the Aegean Sea. So if you find Thess Thessalonica, just south of that is Berea. And just south of that, you see a primary road from the Roman Empire that was called the Ignatian Way. This is one of their Interstate 64s. Literally, it went east and west. <laughs> and it started in Rome, and, and there, as it left Rome, it was called the Appian Way. If you're a classical music fan, you would have heard of Respighi's Pines of the Appian Way. But if not, just tuck that away and listen to it on Spotify. Anyway, so this road left Rome. It crossed the uh, Ionian Adriatic Sea. That is kind of hard to decide where the one ends. And then it crossed over into Greece, and it was called the Ignatian Way. So Thessalonica was a major city on a major road. So this would be like Boonville. No. <laughs> this would be like New York City. Major, major seaport. Galveston at one time was going to be the big seaport in the United States until the big hurricanes basically destroyed the city. San Francisco. So th get those cities in your mind and then think Thessalonica. So that's what the city was like. It was the, the capital, and I'm, I'm going to read from the first page of last week's handout. In 146, Thessalonica became the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia, 146 B.C. In order to administer and protect the far-flung empire, Rome, Rome built a, a network of military highways. Thessalonica was on the Ignatian Way. It connected Asia Minor to the Adriatic Sea. There's your answer. So, like other major Roman roads, it was about, I, I love this, it was about 19.6 feet wide. About. That's pretty close for me, but why would it be about that? It's the width of chariot wheels. <laughs> Which kind of controlled the width of the railroad tracks in the United States, if you go look at the history of that. Just a little fun fact. Um, 19.6 feet wide with large polygonal stone slabs and a hard layer of sand. And then one of the interesting things in, in the Roman cities that they, that they held, they had big blocks out in the middle of the road. Those were not stop sticks. Those were intended for people to be able to walk over the water-flooded street without getting their feet wet. And their stones are spaced so that the chariot wheels could go through them without hitting and getting knocked over. The Romans were ingenious. They were some of the best engineers in the world. You look at the viaducts that they built. That, that's a whole different talk. But they were incredible engineers. So if you, if you spot Thessalonica on the north end of, of the Aegean Sea, 
50 miles south was Mount Olympus. Okay, so if you were walking down the street of Thessalonica, it may have been like walking through an airport terminal or walking around in a big city street and somebody maybe with a shaved head and a red robe wants to give you a pamphlet about their religion. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. When Harold Camping was saying, Jesus is coming back on this day, there were people out in the, in the airports. I just happened to be in an uh, airport in uh, Oakland, California, and I got the flyer handed to me. I said, Jesus is coming back this day. And then, then he had to revise that. No, 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 it, it's a different day. Anyway, so Thessalonica would have evangelistic missionaries from all these different religious groups. For instance, those people that followed the Olympic pantheon, which would include gods like Apollo and Athena and Hercules. You might get a pamphlet handed to you, to, hey, follow, follow these guys and your life will be so much better. The Greek mystery religions like that of Dionysus, which was basically a sex and drinking cult. You might have called it a fraternity, I don't know. Anyway, that, that you might have been invited to join that religion. You might have been invited to, a, to join an Egyptian religion that, that honored Isis or Anubis or Serapis. Or it might have been a, one of the Roman state cults where you actually bowed down to one of the Roman officials. Any one of those religions could have been handing you a, a leaflet and say, hey, come with us. Your life will be a whole lot better. So in chapter 2, when Paul gets accused of being just another religion, he's got to say, whoa, there, I'm, I'm not picking a God on a list of 10. I'm picking my God that's one on a list of one. There is no other. I spell my, my God's name with a capital G. All these other ones are little g. <laughs> so Paul got attacked for a whole number of reasons. And so in chapter 2, he brings out, this is who I am. And Thessalonian believers, this is who you are in Jesus. Okay. Um, so... Thessalonica became a free city in 42 BC. At that time, it was known as Salonica, or if you look it up on a map today, it will be called Thessaloniki. And today, it's roughly a million inhabitants. Second largest city in Greece next to Athens. So this is, this is not going to Chandler and evangelizing. <laughs> This is big time being right in the thick of things after having freshly been beaten. Paul says, so here, here's the problem with one-on-one with -on -one disciple making. It gets messy, doesn't it? None of you are perfect. I'm sorry. Your spouse may tell you that. 
<clears throat> My wife's laughing. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> I always tell her when I've got my arm around her, I'm next to perfect. <laughs> That's just a little joke. Um, so Paul was being put down for any number of reasons. So here he is in, in the big city. And on the second page of the handout last week, I had... I had some questions that I was hoping maybe this week you'd take a look at. But I just want to hit one question before we go on. Why was there so much opposition to Paul's ministry in Thessalonica? Anybody want to hazard a guess? Or an informed opinion? Diana, that, that goddess, yes. Um, not in Thessalonica, no. But, because that was the silversmiths. Um, Athens? Now, now you're testing my memory. But, huh? It's a good guess. So who was opposed to Paul's ministry? All the other religions that I mentioned... And the Jews. Because what was Paul preaching? The fact that there was a Messiah who's come, who has died, and your sins can be forgiven because of his death, burial, and resurrection. Messiah has come. And the Jews said, oh, no. No, 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 no. Messiah does not look like somebody that hung on a cross. He comes in power. And Paul says, hang on, I'm going to teach you that. He is coming in power, just not right now. He's coming back to establish his kingdom in power. The Jews saw two messiahs, one that, that was suffering and one that was conquering. They thought it was two different people. And Paul says, wait a minute, it's the same one. It's just two different comings. And so he, he's laying out for them the, the Jews opposed him, and a lot of Gentiles opposed him because he was tearing down their religious beliefs. There is only one God. Yodhe says, I am it. And so we need, we need to, to go on into chapter 2. And the thing about the book of Thessalonians is that in every chapter, Paul talks about a coming, and, and he talks about this at the end of chapter 1. Well, let, let me back up. Verse 8 of chapter 1, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Last week, I talked about the Greek word that, that was there. The sounded forth in the New American Standard is Exeketai, which literally means to echo. What had happened with the Thessalonian believers is they were first of all receivers of Paul's ministry. And then it, 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 it dug so deep inside them that they then became transmitters of the gospel. 
When I was in college, I watched these rough, tough football player wrestlers, guys that you never thought would have gotten, you'd ever get anywhere with. And in the middle of Bible studies, they broke down and said, yes, I accept Jesus as my savior. It changed their entire life and they, they, they didn't quit being a, an athlete. But what they did is it changed the entire course of their life. I know a lot of these guys are still pastors and missionaries and church planters from the days that we were in college. It's, it is so incredible to see somebody's life changed by Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying is that your ministry now is echoing through the hills of Macedonia and Achaia. So it sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. This letter that Paul is writing to them came about eight to nine months after his visit. He sends Timothy back. Timothy brings a good report, and Paul is complimenting them here. In verse 9, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. And in verse 10 of chapter 1, it says, To wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We will talk about that later in this book. But in chapter 2, we're finally there. But I've laid some groundwork because I think it's important that we get the idea of the setting that we now have in chapter 2. Paul is going to defend himself because he was accused of a number of things. So I don't, don't have it on your handout, but I have a list. Remember I talked about Spin City? The media were saying these kind of things about Paul. I'll give you a list. Paul has a police record, and he's untrustworthy. Okay, is that true? Well, yeah. He was in jail in Philippi. He has a police record, and you can't trust him. Now, see, there's this little element of truth in that much bigger statement. And people believed that lie, the big lie, that had a little lie, embedded in it. Paul is delusional. That's something else they said. Because he was talking about one God, and all these other religions were talking about many, many gods. You can pick the one that you want, the one that's your favorite, as long as you bow down to Caesar. It makes no difference. Paul's ministry is based on impure motives. Have you ever heard that thrown at a minister that's on television or radio or any kind of print media today? You ever, you ever click on any of those little bait-click things that say, here's a list of the top 50 richest preachers in the United States? 
That is, that is bait click. But I want to go through the list and see who they're, they're mentioning. Because a lot of times, whoever they're mentioning has got a really good ministry. And the Spin City folks want to tear them down. That's what the people were trying to do to Paul. He has impure motives. Okay, if Paul has such impure motives, why would he get beaten over and over and over again and come back for more? If, if he was in it for the money, he's in the wrong profession. <sighs> Paul deliberately deceives others. And again, that's coming from all those other religions that are trying to tear down the one true God's religion, relationship, not religion. Paul preaches to please others, not God. This is a whole side topic, but some churches, especially church plants, when they go into a city, will do a demographic study. And they'll see who all the people are that live in a certain area. And so they tailor their ministry to that group of people. And while that sounds good, is that what Paul did? No. He went right into the heart of synagogue and he said, Jesus is king. <laughs> you need to follow him. Change your life. I mean, that's pretty simple, Paul. But he did not worry about demographics. He didn't worry about, well, I might offend these people. He didn't care. He said, as long as God tells me to do this, I am going to do it. So they said that Paul is in the ministry as a mercenary to get what he can out of it materially. I don't see that at all. But that's what, that's what the Spin City folks were saying. Paul only wants to do it for personal glory. I don't see a lot of glory in getting beaten up. I see glory from my Savior, who said, be like me. But I don't see Paul looking for glory. And some people even went so far as to say, Paul is a dictator. He's trying to tell you all what exactly to do and what not to do. So in chapter 2, we're going to read... Having that background, okay? So I want you to see that so that as we read these verses, you can understand what he is saying to the people in Thessalonica. I was <laughs> telling Mike before uh, class tonight, one of the guys I listens to calls the, the believers there the Thessalonicans. And I have to get that out of my head so I don't say it. So if I do, please excuse me. Uh, they're not the Thessalonicans, but <laughs> anyway, chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. That's one of those things that Paul was being talked about. He was being gossiped about. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Paul didn't care. He had one message. It was the good news of Jesus. 
And in the face of Jewish persecution, in the face of all these other religions persecuting him, he said, I don't care. The good news is you can be forgiven of your sins. So verse 3, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Do you hear those things in all the accusations against Paul? But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. That's, there's an interesting phrase there, entrusted with the gospel. Each one of you have been entrusted with the gospel. If you are a financial person and you are responsible for managing someone's money, the term that's used is a fiduciary. You have the responsibility of properly investing someone else's resources so that they benefit and you benefit. That's what you have been entrusted with, a responsibility. And Paul's bringing that out. So in verse 5, for we, have, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Do you hear these accusations I read in these verses? Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. In later letters, Paul talks about that more. Remember, this is his first letter to his first big church. So verse 7, but we, we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Jesus alluded to that idea of a mother hen with her chickens. And, and as he was looking out over the city of Jerusalem, he was saying, I wish I could come to you and put my feathers over you and protect you. And that's what Paul is saying that he was doing as a nursing mother. I have never been a nursing mother, so I cannot speak from experience. But those of you that have been mothers that nursed your young, who is the most selfish person in the world? That baby that depends on you for their sustenance. They do not care. Is it day? Is it night? Was it an hour ago? They don't care. It's all about mom, 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 right? And as a mother, you are the most selfless person in the world because you have to give up all your rights to satisfy the need of this child. And that's the relationship that Paul's talking about here. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Got the picture? Having thus a fond affection for you. Paul was there three Sabbaths. And already in that time, he had grown to love the believers, that group that we call the ecclesia, in Thessalonica. 
fond affection for you. We were well pleased to import to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. So as disciple makers, sometimes you have to give up your life to help a person in need. Have you, as, as, a, as an accountability partner, ever got a call in the middle of the night from somebody that struggled with alcohol and said, I need to talk to someone right now? Someone that struggles with drugs and you're their accountability partner and they call you at all hours at work while you're on vacation, while you're on the golf course, whatever. They don't care. They need you. Disciple-making is a messy, messy business. And Paul knew it. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship. When he calls them brethren, he's saying, we're all in this together, guys. We're serving one king, and that is King Jesus, together. Our labor and hardship, and this labor is hard labor. There's two Greek words, and the one that's used here is about hard labor. How working, how often? Night and day. He's saying this job is 24-7, 365. You don't get a break. <laughs> Night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and is God how devotely and uprightly and blamelessly. We talked about three things. Devotely, uprightly, and blamelessly, we behave towards you as believers. Paul and Silas and Timothy put themselves last in order to promote the believers in Thessalonica. Just as you know how uh, we we're exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as now a father would his own children. The first picture was that of a mother. Now he's saying, okay, I'm like dad. Dad isn't always your buddy. Dad sometimes has to say, you are an idiot, son. <sighs> okay, it's time to shape up. You ever had that talk Maybe with your dad. That's a tough talk as a dad and as a son or a daughter. Paul's saying, so now he's using that analogy of a father. Um, so that you walk in a manner that's worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Does the word of God change you? And I would say it should. If you have a relationship with Jesus and you believe the word of God, it should change the way you live. Externally, internally. So verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Jesus Christ that are in Judea. Where? Judea? Really? Jerusalem? 
Yeah, there was a church in Jerusalem. That's what the Acts 15 passage was about, the council in Jerusalem. There were people that wanted to be close to Judaism, but they didn't know what to do because the, the Jewish believers said, hmm, you got to be Jewish. And Paul said, no. <laughs> don't, don't eat meat that's strangled or offered to idols. Don't eat blood. Keep yourselves from fornication, but you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow Torah in order to be part of this group of people called the ecclesia. So, uh, verse 14 uh, in Judea, for, for you also endure the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Now, Paul's going on this little aside here in verse 15 and 16. Who killed Jesus? My answer is we did. My sin hung him on a cross to pay a penalty that I could not pay to satisfy a righteous God that I could not satisfy with my own holiness, righteousness, or good works. So here in verse 15, Paul says, who both killed, and he's talking about the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. Remember, he's Jewish. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles. What were the Jews doing? They were saying, do not talk to the Gentiles and persuade them that there was a Messiah that has already come. That's against our beliefs. So the Jews were, were, were telling them, don't do this to, with the Gentiles. Make them become Jewish that they might be saved with the results that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Paul is really putting the hammer down on those Judaizers that say there's only one way to God and it's through being a Jew. Now, I'm going to turn that around for a second because we're, we live in a day and you see it on the news all the time. You see Spin City on the news. Israel bombed another hospital in Gaza and they killed all these kids. Well, excuse me, there's a little bit of truth. There were bombs that hit that hospital because Hamas and the Palestinian Authority and all those groups huddled around the kids to save their own lives. So there's this little element of truth to try to tear down the nation of Israel. And I'm not saying everything that Israel does is right, but we see in our day something I never, ever thought I would see again since the Holocaust. When they said never again, went on that night called Kristallnacht where they broke all the windows of the Jewish businesses and that was a trial run to see if they could get away with starting to persecute Jews. After the Holocaust, after so many million Jews were killed and displaced, the saying was never again. And I'm sorry, but I think it is again. Who attacked Israel? It was Hamas. It was the, the elected representatives of the people in Gaza. They said, we appoint you as leaders. And they said, okay, we're going to go bomb Israelis because we want to wipe Israel off the map. 
anti-Semitism is ripe today. But before I point too many fingers, there was a long period of time in Christian history where we were just as bad. I hate to say it, but if you read Martin Luther, some of his writings later on in his life, are it's Jew hatred. It's really, really painful stuff. And it hasn't been until the last hundred years or so that the evangelical church has woken up to the fact that Israel is God's chosen people. Israel is God's chosen land, and we need to support them. The promises that God made to Israel are never going to be taken away. They're always going to be true. But praise God, we've been grafted in. So now I sound like Paul, don't I? Maybe a little bit. He got fired up. I get fired up about this because I watch Spin City and I get really, I yell at the TV because it's stupid. You are perverting the truth. Okay, sorry. That was my soapbox. Verse 17. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while, meaning they were gone, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager to, with great desire, desire see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, but yet who thwarted him? The first says Satan thwarted Paul. Paul? Really? Paul does get back to Thessalonica if you read Acts chapter 20. He gets back to the church. Verse 19, for who was our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? That's a great verse. Who is our hope or our joy or our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming for you are our glory and joy. Man, Paul's saying, I love you guys. I really love, I'm a long ways away. We can only FaceTime a little bit. But he, his heart burned for the people in Thessalonica. But yet, what happened in Thessalonica? He was beaten and kicked out to Berea. It wasn't the church that did it. It was the Jewish people and it was all these other religions in that city. So I hope you see in chapter 2, Paul is, is supporting himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ and he's supporting the church that he helped to found and that he loves. He loves the church he loves those churches that he founded. You read two books about the church in Corinth and how much he loved them and struggled with them. They were such a messed up church because of the environment around them. The prostitutes in that city were controlled by the priests. It was one seriously messed up city. I heard one, one commentator say, instead of calling those books First and Second Corinthians, we should call them First and Second Californians. <laughs> now, that's pretty brutal, isn't it? Paul loves, because Paul is God's messenger and apostle, and he wants the best, the absolute best 
for those people that he has led to Jesus. He wants nothing to happen to them. And that's the guts of chapter 2. So I hope you get the picture of where Paul's going to be going now in chapter 3, and he's going to get into some pretty interesting stuff as we get to chapters 4 and 5 in this book. So I hope you'll come back. Let's, let's close in prayer. Thank you, God, that you've given us in this day mm, uh, a unique opportunity to share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that sins can be forgiven. Help us not to be drugged down by those other voices that tell these, these lies and make them sound like truth. Help us to sort truth from error, but help us to always stick in your word so that we might follow and be what you've called us to be, those that are ministers of the gospel of Christ. Thank you for the high calling and thank you for the high responsibility that you've given to us. Pray this in thy name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time, 